You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Hello and welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. Blimey, two weeks have gone by already. I must be enjoying myself because I fail to see the time passing at the moment. It's a bit like Groundhog Day every day during this lockdown. However, I got excited about something. We have a new country joining us on this platform, Chile. So whoever you are there in beautiful Santiago, I wish you a very warm welcome in my cupboard. I have fantastic memories of um, Santiago and I can't wait to go back there one day. Anyway, on with the story. So the person who has given me this story is a grandmother now. She isn't too far from her 80th birthday. But one day, a good few years ago, she was a child, an 11-year-old girl. And she was on a big ship a ship that was taking her back from Africa, where she had been born and had grown up, to Belgium, the country of her familial roots. She didn't know Europe very much. She had grown up in the red dirt of the Katanga country. She was the eldest of four children, and her younger brother had contracted polio, and he wasn't well. And for that reason, and others, the family had decided to go back to their homeland to start a new life there. So, for the young girl, started the biggest voyage of her life. One that was taking her away from all she knew, putting an ocean between her childhood and what was to be this new chapter of her life. And in the evenings, on the deck of the ship, her eyes on the water, she would imagine what her new house would be like, her new school. Would she make friends? She had been told that she had hordes of cousins to play with, and also a grandfather to meet and to discover. And she would dream about that grandfather. In the 11 years of her short life, she hadn't known much of a paternal embrace. Indeed, her father hadn't been a tender man towards her. But of course, she hadn't realized that then. You do not miss what you do not know exists. It is only later in life that what was a repairable lack or want in childhood becomes an impossible and hopeless void. But still, she unknowingly longed for that tender paternal presence. And there was a grandfather waiting for her in Brussels. She had heard about him. There were, in fact, many stories that she had heard when the adults spoke and when she made herself little and invisible. She had heard how he had been born in an affluent family in the Belgium High Society how he had grown up, lonely, in a large house at a time where parents didn't really have time for their children, 
and how, as a small child, the closest person to him was the stable groom, and how the man would heave him up in his strong arms and sit him on the tallest hen horse, and how, while the horse would be munching on soft hay, the man would give him some hot brew to eat in a silver porringer. And there, sitting on the warm beast, in the cushioned piece of the stable, all was better. He had grown into a man and married a beautiful and exuberant young woman. Had it been a marriage of love? No one knew, and no one is there to say. But a baby was conceived just before the first war started, and he was sent off to the front. His young bride was barely showing. In conversations, she had caught glimpses of stories about his bravery during the battles and how he had been badly injured in the later part of the combat. And also, she had heard of the very first time her grandfather had met his son, then only four years old, her own father. The little boy had heard so much about his dad, the hero. The child had never met him, of course, being born after his departure to war. All he had had been stories of combat, courage, bravery, and a photograph of him standing upright in his uniform. And as he arrived in the hospital ward next to his father's bed, in his four years old clumsiness and eagerness to meet his hero, he had knocked over the jug of water that was on the bedside table. And instead of the embrace the child was so longingly hoping from his father, he had received a slap on his four years old cheek from the back of the hand of the father he had waited all his little life to meet. And for the child and the father, without doubt, it must have been a door that closed itself. This explains a lot, you might think. Hindsight is a valuable thing, but at the time, it is only hurtful fog, and one that can take hold for generations. And she had heard how after the war, diminished by his injuries, he had never been the same man again. How the couple of her grandparents had never been the same again. Soon his wife had moved her lover in one wing of the house and he lived on the other side. He became an erudite, finding refuge in books and knowledge and another war broke out, and he went again. By the time he had come back, all that he had left behind was gone. And soon, his wife had deserted the house. Gone with her were the wealth, the furs, jewelry, and any remnants of the grand life they once had. And even the house went. He was left with his readings, his books, and his memories. 
And ten or so years later, there was a family on a boat traveling back from Africa. A family he barely knew. A son, a daughter-in-law, and four grandchildren appearing in the autumn of his life. And he hoped they would love him. And the girl on the boat's deck in the middle of the oceans, between Africa and Europe, her eyes lost on the water in the evening light, wondered about that grandfather. And she hoped he would love her. At the end of the weeks-long voyage, the ship docked in the port of Antwerpen. Frenzy ensued. People on the deck waving their hats and handkerchiefs to people on the docks. Chains lowered and engines roaring. Bridges were lowered and passengers allowed to disembark. And the family made their way. And there she saw him. An unfocused dark figure at first, standing straight in an impeccable suit, and then sitting down on a crate, as if a little overwhelmed, her grandfather. The four children stood back as the adults greeted an old man. But was he that old? She now wonders. He was possibly only about 60 at the time, but he had fought two wars, plus all the invisible ones. And there, sitting on the crate, his grandchildren were introduced to him one by one, the youngest first, the eldest last. And he looked at her, he told her to come closer. And from the depth of the pocket of his dark suit, he produced four glossy red lollipops. One for you, he said. And that is how she remembers her grandfather, the very first time they met. The red glossy lollipops. Well, that and the big white handkerchief that he had used to wipe out of his old eyes the emotion of being given a family. And life in Brussels was an extraordinary discovery for the girl. She had indeed hordes of older cousins on her mother's side, glamorous and vibrant, fashionable. Even school was exciting. Everything was so different from the parochial life she had left behind in Africa. They had taken residence in a leafy suburb of Brussels. Weekends were often spent in the countryside, in the eccentric family of her mother, with the cousins. But the weeks were spent in Brussels, and Wednesdays were special days. School ended at lunchtime on Wednesdays, and they would be the days where her grandfather would come to visit. Without fail, he would appear at the door as the clock would ring its twelfth chime. There, smiling, impeccably dressed in his dark suit, his gold cufflings glowing in the midday light, his shoes polished 
to the highest shine, and at the end of his fingers, hanging by its ribbon, a box of patisseries from the best pâtissier of Brussels. Seven merveilleux. Or if I had to translate, seven wonderfuls. It's a type of delicacy. It's made of meringue and cream and is covered in flaked dark chocolate and topped by the glossiest of red glassy cherry. And on those Wednesdays, they would share lunch together. And after that, the girl would climb upstairs to do her homework. And from the landing, she could hear the voices of her mother and her grandfather sitting together in the drawing room. Her mother would be doing some needlework and the old man spoke and spoke. And as the mother concentrated, head bent down on her work, he told her stories that had never been told to anyone. And the girl upstairs on the landing wondered and wanted to know, but those stories never went further than the cushioned comfort of that drawing room. And then her grandfather would get up and he would say his goodbyes and he would go. Where did he disappear for the week? She really had no idea. She had never seen where he lived. Sometimes in between words and catching glimpse of adults' conversations, the girl heard references to lack of money and privation, scarcity and pride, refuse of help and respect. But without fail, the next Wednesday, her grandfather would be at the door, noble and beautiful in his suit, golden cufflings shining bright, dangling a box of expensive patisseries at the end of his fingers. And on one Wednesday, the twelfth chime of the clock rang, and still he wasn't there. They waited, but he didn't come. He had been taken ill the night before, and he was in hospital. All those years of war and the injuries they had inflicted on the old man's body were taken hold of him, and on a dark morning they had the better of him. The girl never got to say goodbye to her grandfather. A few days later, the adults pushed a key in the lock of the door of the grandfather's apartment. No one had really been there for years. The old man had been clever at avoiding visits from his family, always arguing that he would come, that he was happy to get out, that the change of scenery would do him good. And so, for that reason, no one was ready for the scene that welcomed them as they walked into the apartment. The rooms were empty. Furniture's gone. Possessions gone. A bed, a table, a chair. His suit on a hanger. His polished shoes tidied below. Even the books had gone. And in the pocket of his suit, they found his wallet. And there, a bus pass, and a library card, and a pawn receipt. 
The date on the receipt was recent, and the pawn shop was only a stone throw away, so someone went. They paid the pawn fee, and they were handed a small jewelry box. On the counter of the pawn shop, they opened the box. Two gold cufflinks glowed quietly in their velvet nest. And in their glow, they spoke of box of patisseries dangling on their silk ribbons. Forty-five years later, in the warm breeze of a May afternoon, under the canopy of a large Bramley tree, a family is gathered, celebrating the christening of a boy. The bony baby is given trinkets and silver spoons and all such things that baby receive for the christening. Her grandmother is sitting on a cane chair. She hasn't yet given her present. She wants to wait for the right time as this present comes with a bit of a story. And on her laps, safely, she holds a little jewelry box. And in the box, two gold cufflinks lay quietly in their velvet nest. And next to them, folded in the smallest of notes, a message explaining why they might be so precious. Et voilà. I hope you have enjoyed this story. I do thank that wonderful grandmother for letting me tell the tale. What I can add on the subject of a merveilleux is that that particular grandmother still loves them. But to her, after finding out about the empty apartment and the pawned gold cufflinks, they started tasting a lot more than just cream, meringue, dark chocolate and glacé cherry. Here you go. If you want to have a look at the cufflinks, you will find a photograph of them on the Airing Cupboards Instagram, Facebook or Twitter page. And as you are there, you can quickly tap on that button to follow and leave me a message with your thoughts about the story. I will finish with the usual plea. If you haven't done it yet, please rate and review the Airing Cupboard on iTunes and share it, especially with friends in faraway lands. Have a good two weeks and until we meet again in the Airing Cupboard. Goodbye. Place.